Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Okay, as David mentioned a little bit ago, my name is Nick Allen, and I get to be the campus pastor of the Nashville location. And I'll just tell you, um, your little round of applause this morning when he mentioned my name, whoa, heart is touched. Um, That never happens to me at the Nashville campus. Um, And the only thing that I was more nervous about this morning than actually standing on this stage in front of a largely new crowd of people for me and opening up Romans chapter 3 was that tiny little staircase. Um, But we have already weathered that and we're good to go. I am so excited to be here today. I spent a lot of time at the Nolansville campus through the years from its inception way back at Edmondson Elementary School and then moving to Nolansville Elementary School. But long before that um, goes my relationship with your campus pastor, Jason Hale, because we've known each other for nearly 20 years. Um, And it's one of the greatest joys of my life to get to be able to serve on a church staff with him for as long as we have. So I count it a privilege um, to be here today in his absence. I get to be here with my wife, Susan Allen. We've been married for almost 23 years. Um, I just wanted to say that so y'all know how old I was um, in the room. And we have three kids who are here with us this morning. They are ages 16. I say that so that you can pray for me, and 15, um, and then 10, and that's, that's the only three. Okay, so we are um, coming on the end of the school year and diving into a series, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, called Master Class. It's an entire summer look at the book of Romans. Um, And because it's the end of the year and we're celebrating commencements, the college pastor, Brandon Billups, is actually preaching for me at the Nashville campus today because not only have we celebrated the arrival of Taylor Swift into Nashville this week, but a lot of college students have celebrated their graduation experiences. And we know that we're coming up on high school graduation where they're looking at what's next for them in life. In the spirit of graduating and SATs and analogies, I would like to say that Leviticus is in the Old Testament what Romans is in the New And anybody who's gone through one of those read the Bible in a year programs, you recognize what I'm talking about. Because Leviticus is usually, like you're going strong through Genesis, you can rally around Exodus. But when you get to Leviticus, that's where people trail off because it's a whole lot about bloody entrails and circumcisions. And it just kind of gets tedious over what seems like 4,700 chapters. Well, Romans is like that in the New You can track with Jesus in the Gospels and be so excited about about the birth story, and then we get to the Easter story, and you love it. And then all of a sudden, we go to the book of Acts, where the church is unleashed on the world, and there's miracle after miracle of everyday, ordinary guys who are now taking the message of Jesus to the rest of the world. And then we rally around the book of Romans, which is what is considered by a lot of scholars as Paul's most accurate theological work. And it can get real tedious, again, talking about circumcisions and diatribes about All of our, just going to go ahead and tell you this morning, sin. Um, I know that you guys are going to stick with it here in Nolensville, the book of Romans, over the next 
now 14 weeks. And I'm praying that we stick with it in Nashville. And just in case you're kind of tempted to poop out along the way, I want to give you a fast forward preview of where the book is actually going to go to my favorite chapter in the book of Romans. After this long theological index of what it means to be a sold out believer in Jesus Christ, Paul ends just to fast forward and preview of where you're going to be maybe on vacation this summer and you get to Romans chapter 16 with a who's who list of incredible names in the life of the early church. And I want you to see where he starts. It's with a woman. It says in chapter 16 of the book of Romans, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincre, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need for you from, from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. If you go through chapter 16, which we will at the end of the summer, you won't remember this moment by then, but we're going to get there at the end of the summer. We're going to go through all of the names. 29 of them get a greeting, but one of them gets a commendation, and it's Phoebe. And that word commend, it's the idea of I vouch for her, I stand with her, I attest that she can be trusted. I told the Nashville campus last week, and I plan to tell them often throughout the summer, that Paul threw his apostolic weight. We got 13 books in the New Testament that are largely attributed to the Apostle Paul, and he throws all of that apostolic weight behind this one woman named Phoebe. She's Likely not only the one that's entrusted with the original copy of the letter to the churches in Rome, but she's most likely the person that went from house church to house church to house church, delivering these words, and very likely the one who read them out loud. Do any of the things that we've already read in the book of Romans, or any of the things that you know you're going to encounter this summer in a master class called, does any of it change knowing that the original hearing of that word was gifted to the church by a female voice? It shouldn't. That idea of her being a deacon in the church wasn't just that borrowed word that means, oh, well, she was a servant in the life of the church. No, she was a specific deacon in the specific life of the church of Sincrase. She was a leader. And so we are going to just go ahead and say it, and I get excited about it. We celebrate the lives and the testimonies and the teaching and the authority of the women leaders in the life of our church. If you've got your notes with you this morning, yeah, we'll celebrate that for a second. If you got your notes with you this morning, there's places for you to jot things down, things that you don't want to forget or things that you want to kind of just kind of track along with so you don't fall asleep. I get it. I'm okay with that. Um, There's a running theme in all of reading scripture. And I want you to see that. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Romans. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Exodus. It doesn't matter if you're in the book of Psalms. Like there's this running theme in reading scripture. And it's because there's a difference between two really important ideas. And the first is, what does this verse, what does this passage, what does this story mean to me? And that resonates with us. Because even in the life of a church, even in the life of people that are a little bit old school sometimes, we know that we are on the cusp of post-modernity and we're living in the world of anything and everything goes. And social scientists and cultural students tell us that we're actually moving at a breakneck speed past the idea of post-modernism to a meta-modern world. And the running theme of commonality between those two things is individual supremacy. Everybody in charge, and everybody get to determine whatever it is they want to determine. And so this idea fits into it. And I don't want to knock it, but you may have seen this sentence before. I've said this sentence before. Hey, let's unpack it in small group. What does this verse mean to you? 
And that somehow, if we're not really careful, places an extra layer of authority on the wrong place. On you. It would be so much better if before we got to the place, like maybe we'll get there eventually and it's okay. Like maybe we'll get to the point where it's, it's important to share and it's important to commune and it's important to kind of be vulnerable about what we think. Like it's important that we may get at some point to the idea of what does scripture mean to you, but not before we've gone to the idea of what does scripture actually mean. Because more important than what any of these verses mean to me it is what they meant to the person who wrote it. Communication is the burden of the sender, not the receiver. And so we want to say, as we break into masterclass, as we look at Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, all the way to chapter 16, that the greatest burden is placed on holy God Almighty and Apostle Paul, his servant. We want these guys to tell us what this text means. It's their message to send. And so we want it to speak loudly and clearly. And we're going to be a people who commit ourselves to stick it out and to listen very closely. There's moments in this work where the Apostle Paul seems to move really quickly and also moments where it seems to move really slowly. Romans is one of the more explicit books. It's one of the longer works, but it has a really concise overall message. In the book of Romans, it's in your notes this morning, the Apostle Paul is slowly building a case that no one is exempt He's slowly building a case to explain how nobody is exempt from responsibility to understanding what the word says and what it means. If you thought by any stretch of the mean that you were excused a couple of weeks ago, as Pastor Jeff read the laundry list of sins that are explained in Romans chapter 1, if you thought that you were excused, it says things like this in verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. It's creative, but you know, they disobey their parents. And I'm just going to say, parents, you raise those hands if you are so excited that right there alongside murder and strife, the Apostle Paul also includes disobeying your parents. I say this to my children often when they were little, I made them repeat a sentence after me. Hey kids, what do we do after we listen? And they would say, obey because you didn't hear it unless you obeyed it and guys I was just doing you a solid favor because I didn't want you to end up in the laundry list of sins that are outlined for us in Romans chapter one like it's serious serious business we've got murder we've got strife we've got disobeying your parents in the same paragraph with some of what I would call the worst sins imaginable like this is a really big deal and you're thinking okay I'm tracking with this now it says they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree. He had already explained that this idea of who he was and believing him was placed on the human heart. It was revealed to us through nature and the surrounding world. They do such things, deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also, they approve. That's like a biblical high five of those who practice them. To the systematic reader, one can, one can catch that Paul is slowly starting at the top of the funnel with the world's worst pagan sins, and he's narrowing it down to the Jewish heritage of those who heard the words of Romans chapter 1. Who's the audience in any of these churches? It's a diverse group of believers in Jesus Christ. Some of them are Jewish and come from a Jewish background. Some of them are Gentile and have no understanding of all of that Old Testament stuff that everybody else is bringing to the table. And from the 
sins of the pagan world that are outlined in kind of awkward detail in chapter 1. He begins to narrow it down in chapter 2. Imagine being that Jewish reader. You were sitting there in chapter 1 as Paul was listing out all of those sins, and you were inching up to the edge of your seat because you knew that they didn't apply to you, and you were like, amen. Thank you, Paul. He is sticking it to, this is what we needed. This is what we lacked. We needed some kind of voice in our early church to really stick it to the Gentiles and really stick it to anybody who was celebrating and living this kind of way of life. There may have been a hallelujah. There may have been an amen. There may have been, you go, Phoebe, girl. We're so excited about the words that you're bringing to us today. There's Christians today who kind of operate in a similar fashion, who the loudest and the longest rallying cry is a war cry against lost people, who feel that it is somehow uniquely their call to blast the world for being worldly. And we talk about it. We say like, oh, the world's just, oh, it's just getting so bad. The world is just getting, I've never seen it as bad as it is. And when we talk about the things that may have changed in your lifetime or or my lifetime, if the world is getting more worldly, then they should get a raise because they've achieved their goal. Like the goal of the world is to be more worldly. The goal of the world is to be increasingly more worldly. The goal of the Christian is not to call out the world for doing what the world was always going to do. In fact, there are so many angry believers in Jesus Christ who are sitting on the edge of our pews anytime sins are listed, pointing the finger and saying, that's right, amen, you're living by values that are exposed in the world instead of values that are exposed by this book. And we're mad at people who do not believe in Jesus when they don't act like Jesus. And we're mad at people who don't act like what this world says they're supposed to act when they don't believe what this word says. We're mad at people for not acting Christian when they are, in fact, not Christian. I know nobody's doing that here in Nolansville. (laughs) Aggressively attacking the world for being the world. Somehow thinking that you're doing a favor for God. Like, God, I'm going to help you out for a second on this one. I'm going to call out all these arrogant, sinful, disobeying their parents, people right over here. It was true in the first century Roman church, and it's, it's probably true today. That there is that moment when those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while now are tempted to look at the world and be mad at them because they're not walking with Jesus. And we do really well to remember a person cannot act like Christ until they know him. And let's be honest, even then, it's hard. Even then, it's challenging. If, If the believers in that house church didn't get caught up by the words in Romans chapter 1. They they surely would have been caught by Romans chapter 2 because he he turns the corner. Oh yeah, all these pagan sins in the world, but but, but be careful, Jewish folks. You're not excused because you, therefore, verse 1, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Man, why does that got to be included? For at whatever point you judge another, we talked about it last week, you are condemning yourselves. Whatever's mentioned in Romans chapter 1, including disobeying your parents. I just want to get that out there. We know that you guys are also guilty. And not only that, 
We know that God's judgment, verse 2, is against those who do such things. It's based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you not to holier-than-thou judgment, but to repentance? What Paul communicated about the unbelieving pagan world in Romans chapter 1, he now turns directly to the believing Jewish house church world. Imagine being that reader and celebrating what you heard in chapter 1. You get him, Paul, only to realize that now he's literally read your mail. Somehow or another, if somebody could get past chapter 1 and not feel like that addressed them, if somebody can make it past chapter 2 and not feel and recognize that that chapter was fully about them, surely everyone, it's in your notes, falls underneath Romans chapter 3. Because we'll get there this morning. Chapter 3, verse 23, it's a memory verse for us this week. If you're tracking along with the memory verse challenge that's going along with every week of this series and you've got your journal and you're looking online and you're reading a portion of Romans every day and memorizing verses along the way, it says, For all have sinned. And fall short, like we don't measure up to the standard of God, to the glorious standard of God. All fall short of the glory of God. And we want to go back and see just how he got there. So take your Bibles if you have them this morning or your mobile devices, as the case may be. You're looking at Romans chapter 3, and that's where we're spending the remainder of our time. It says, what advantage then? Like we've talked about the advantages of being the Jew, the, the, the differences and the separations of being circumcised and having that sign of a covenant. What advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? I just need to let you know I'm going to say circumcision at least five more times this morning so you can kind of tune in and prepare your ears. It says much in every way. Like what's the advantage? There, Here it is right here. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and let every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Like, if my sinfulness is making God look kinder, then I should just keep going on sin. Like, I'm actually doing God a solid. Like, I'm helping you out. Like, I'm making your kindness and your goodness more relevant and more real to other people, so I'll just keep on going. And he says, no, no, not at all. That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, Paul says. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? If it was actually helpful for you, God, in your argument that I became a sinner, then why are you not celebrating the fact that I'm a sinner and instead turning judgment on me? He says, why not say, as some slanderously claim, that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Paul says, not at all. Like, I'm like, first, first you tell me, yes, there's an advantage because we get the word that you entrusted God's words to us, but now you tell me that there, that there is no blessing. And he says this, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. If A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. 
If we're all sinners and in the same boat, what the word should have done is made the Jewish people get there sooner. But they spent 400 years and added thousands and thousands of layers of interpretation. What does, what does that word mean to you? And the Pharisees added layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of what the word meant to them to where it became so convoluted and so confusing that nobody could see the Savior that was standing right in front of them. It's always been from the start in the garden and the nakedness by the tree all the way to the nakedness on a cross. It's always been about God working out a way for his people to come back to him. The problem is you don't know that you need to come back unless you first recognize that you're really far off. And you don't understand just how far off you are until you recognize the weight of your sin. And if you think somehow that your work and your law or your circumcision, I told you I was going to say that word several times. If you think that your work or your law or your circumcision, sorry, circumcision were ever in any way going to bring you any closer, that it was enough for you or that it could be enough for someone else, then you didn't realize how far apart you were. What Paul is inviting us to do through the laundry list of pagan sins in chapter 1, through the idea of judgment in chapter 2, and through the revelation that sin doesn't help anybody in chapter 3, he's saying, guys, we have to surrender to some really bad news. The Bible, the gospel, it's not good news unless you realize that you need it. It's not good news unless you realize that there's first some bad news. And so Paul continues in in Romans chapter 3. He starts quoting all kinds of Old Testament passages of Scripture, proving the argument that he's making. He says in verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And if you want to know what all means in the original biblical language, it just means all. Like everybody. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. He's quoting Psalm chapter 14. And he says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers, which is terrifying, is on their lips. He's quoting Psalm chapter 5 and Psalm chapter 140. He says, their mouths are full of cursing. And your mouths better not be full of cursing. Okay, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm chapter 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery. Mark their ways. That's Isaiah chapter 59. And he says, the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Psalm 36. He starts from the head where the mouth and the lips and the teeth are and goes right to the feet and says every single part of us is wicked all day long. What the word of God does, what the Old Testament law does, what any kind of rule that you read in this book does is it presents to us a really unattainable morality an unattainable morality. And out of that, it births every manner and issue of identity and individuality and security. Like if if morality can't be the way that I measure up, then what else can I slip in there to help me live up to the standard of whatever I want to live up to in life? Because we long for our own interpretations. We long for our own understandings. We, we crave our own definitions and we want to live out our own strategy. It says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law 
so that every mouth, you know, the mouths that are full of deceit, the mouths that are open graves, the mouths that are full of the poison of vipers, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world, everybody, be held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. It doesn't matter if you somehow avoided the really big nasty sins that were listed in Romans chapter 1. It doesn't matter if somehow you skated by and weren't a judgmental fool in chapter 2. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Whatever you've placed your identity in, whatever you've placed your security in, whatever standard of morality you're attempting to live up to, no one will be declared righteous. Rather, through that law, we become conscious, we become aware of our sin. This morning, you may have noticed that scattered around the room are tables that have communion elements on them. We're going we're gonna to observe that later this morning. You also notice, if you've ever been here before, that there was something different added to your worship guide today. We're, we're doing this at all of our Rolling Hills campuses this morning. You've got a tiny little red slip of paper, and here's what you're invited to do if you're bold enough to do it. Jot down whatever that sin is. Maybe it's one of the really audacious ones that's lifted in chapter one. Maybe it's just the idea of being hypocritical and judgmental like it's outlined in chapter two. Maybe you just want to write the word sinner. Maybe you just are bold enough to write your own name. But if this is a meaningful exercise for you, write it down as as a picture of confession. This is what I struggle with. This is what my sin is. And you're like, well, Nick, you didn't give me a big enough red piece of paper. I get it. There's probably not enough red paper. But, but what is it that you would confess and that you would claim and that you would understand is your name before God today? You might want to write down, if you don't have anything else, that you disobeyed your parents. Okay. <laughs> we got to first be a people. You've got more time to do that. We've got to first be a people who surrender to some really bad news before we're ever able to fully understand and comprehend this very good news. It says in verse 21, but now, like no one is made righteous under the law, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known <laughs> to which the law and the prophets testify. This whole law, this whole prophets, like Paul is saying, the entire Old Testament points to this moment. That the righteousness that you've been working so hard to claim, that the righteousness that you've been working so hard to prove on your own, that the righteousness that you've been working so hard to redefine so that you somehow measure up to what it was always supposed to be in the first place, that that righteousness is now given, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Whether or not you disobey your parents, it's about people who through faith believe. He says there's no difference between Jew, those who have the law, and Gentile, those who, who never got the law. And it says in verse 23, that verse that we memorize, that verse that if you ever went to vacation Bible school or youth camp as a kid, you probably zeroed in at some point on this verse. It's part of a, a larger body of works from Romans that form for us a pattern and a plan of salvation. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short. You don't measure up to the glory of God. 
that's Jews and Gentiles, the entire audience in the house churches that Paul is speaking to, everybody's on the same page. It says, and all, everybody who falls short, it goes on, are justified freely. You didn't earn it. You don't have to pay for it. By his grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That's why we're taking communion today. That's why we're celebrating with these elements today, these these symbols of what it means for Christ to give himself as a sacrifice of atonement for us today because it's through the shedding of his blood that Paul writes about, that Phoebe spoke about, and it's to be received by faith. There's this thing about being a believer in Jesus Christ. This idea of, of of reconciling and understanding and even claiming the bad news over your life that I am a dirty, rotten sinner. We used to hold our babies and we'd pat their bottoms and they were crying because they didn't want to go to sleep and they were fighting us in lots of ways. And I would look down and I would say, to my middle especially, Nora Blake, you can cry all you want to, but I just want to let you know something that I'm going to let you know right now at five months. I'm going to let you know this at 15 years old. I'm going to let you know this at 21. Daddy will win. You give it your best shot, girlfriend. I will win. It's okay. These, these tears, this fighting, this, this resisting my authority in your life right now, that's natural. All people do it because you, as beautiful as you are, like the rest of the world around you, like your father before you, are a dirty, rotten sinner. From your head to your toe. <laughs> Evil has plagued you all the days of your life. Murder and strife and gossip and slander. And you are disobeying your father right now got to come to the realization and the recognition whatever stage in our life maybe you didn't get it at five months old but he did maybe you didn't get it by 15 years old maybe you're sitting in the room today and you're you're over 50 years old I don't want to single you out but you know it's okay and you're just now coming to terms with the fact that yep my whole life that I've tried on my own to figure things out, the, my whole life that I've tried to worm my way in and prove that I was worthy of some kind of picture and measure of God's love, I'm now coming to the realization through Romans chapter 1 and through Romans chapter 2 and now Romans chapter 3 that I am a sinner. I want to tell you the, the best part of that. It's that recognition precedes redemption. For you to experience the fullness of God's redemption in your life, for you to experience the fullness of the picture of his forgiveness that was paid for you on a cross, you got to first come to the recognition that you are, in fact, a sinner. Recognition precedes redemption. You recognize your sin. You accept the, the really bad news of what Paul is saying about you and the case that's being built against you. And when you do that, you begin to understand your need for Christ. And we've already read it because this whole chapter, Romans 3, while it seems steeped in bad news, it actually offers us some really good news along the way. It says in chapter 3, verse 2, that the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And you today, if you're sitting in this spot, you've been entrusted with the the words of God and, and the story of his son and what it means to be his And then it says Jews and Gentiles are are, 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 are alike, all under the power of sin. 
There's no difference between them, verse 9 and verse 22. And that's actually really good news for us because it means that nobody else has a leg up that you don't have. It means that the person who grew up in church memorizing Bible verses and going to Sunday school doesn't have an advantage that you have now not been presented with. Every single one of us, whether they grew up in this or not, is a dirty, rotten sinner. And until we come to the conclusion that we are, in fact, sinners, we don't recognize our need for God's gift of grace. It says in verse 28, We maintain that a person is justified by faith. That's the underlying message of all 16 chapters of the book of Romans. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your history. It's not about your effort. It's about faith in Jesus. That's how a person is justified. The whole book of Romans is weaving that together for us. I grew up calling a couple of verses that are isolated from that book, the Roman road. And it was a nod to the fact that the, 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 the Roman civilization paved roads in order to provide conquest and in order to indoctrinate their system all over. One of the wonders of the ancient empire was their transportation system that went all over everywhere. And the marvel is that that system of trade and travel and conquest became the very same roads that God Almighty used to spread his gospel and to transport his letters around the churches so that people would know what it meant to be bought by the love of Jesus Christ. So Romans 3.23 starts us off and it says, all, that's all we need, all of us to know that we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. At minimum, we're just a whole bunch of people that disobey our parents. And then it says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin, we deserve death. But in 5.8, it says God demonstrates. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still dirty, rotten, disobedient sinners, Christ died for us. And the beauty of that is that in Romans 6.23, no longer are the wages of sin death. There's a gift of God and it's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that in Romans 10.9, if we declare with our mouth, you mean this mouth? The one that's full of lies? The one that's full of the poison of vipers? Yeah, that mouth. That same sinful one can now confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be converted to one of his saints. That's where salvation comes from. It's believing in Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.